good luck. I think it's a, it's a very complicated issue. And that's what globalization has been all about, and, and that is what the U.S. has, has um, pushed for the last 20, 30 years. So what they've done for the last 20, 30 years is achieve globalization, and now trying to push back on it seems to be the wrong route. Um, and, and I think chips, I mean, semiconductor chips, is just one part of the whole process. You know, there, there's been no shortage of opportunity for the U.S. to build more semiconductor manufacturing. They just haven't done it. They haven't been prepared to make You're the right, Stuart. And, and the, same, the same is true in Europe. And if you, look at, if you look at the manufacturing numbers, something like 70 to 80% of all semiconductors are manufactured in either Korea or Taiwan. So, um, you know, it's, you, you, want to, you want to continue to have that because if you don't have them, you can't produce cars, you can't produce phones, you can't produce all sorts of other goods and, that, that are so reliant on them these days. Okay, and on that, we have to bring it to a close. Thank you very much. You heard their Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, Stuart Aldcroft, Iris Pang, Chief Greater China Economist at ING Wholesale Banking, and RTHK's International Economics Correspondent, Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's have another look at how the markets are doing about half an hour into trading here in the Asian time zone. Uh, the SX200 in Australia up about one and a third percent. The Nikkei 225 now in Japan is storming ahead up over two percent. Cosby in South Korea has rallied about 1.6 percent half an hour after the open. Uh, when Hong Kong stocks get going in about an hour's time, looks like the Hang Seng is going to rise about 340 points at the open. Thank you for listening this morning. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news is Back Chat with Janice Wong and Danik Gittings this morning. The weather forecast, mainly fine, very hot, isolated showers. Uh, the maximum temperature is going to be about 34 degrees, fine and very hot for the rest of the week and the maximum temperature likely to reach 35. Uh, the very hot weather warning is still in force. It's 30 degrees right now, 83% relative humidity. Times 8.32. Here's Andrew Shrosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. The government has promised to put young people at the forefront of policymaking. The Secretary for Home and Youth Affairs, Alice Mack, says young people must be given opportunities to pursue their dreams and succeed. She also says officials must show sincerity when reaching out to youngsters and hearing them out. Hong Kong's young people are very competent. They are very capable of themselves. I don't think they choose to lie flat. But of course, maybe they will feel that they don't have the ways to achieve their goals and targets, or they find it very difficult to fulfill their targets or objectives. I think what we're trying to do is to empower them so that they find different ways to achieve their goals and objectives, and we hope that given uh, the different uh, assistance and support uh, from the Hong Kong government and also from the central government, they will see hope and opportunities so they can fight for a better accomplishment. Turning overseas now, the head of the UN's World Meteorological Organization, Petteri Talas, has warned that heat waves such as the one currently hitting Western Europe are becoming more frequent in a trend he says will last at least into the 2060s. The BBC's Victoria Gill has more. 
there have been these, these southerly winds that have put up heat from North Africa. There's a, a high pressure keeping that heat there. It's been very, very dry, so the ground can't evaporate moisture to release some of that energy. So all of these kind of patterns have led up to what, what is a heat wave. But what's really going on with climate change is that we're essentially just turning up the dial on the global temperature. So we're increasing the probability of this kind of heat wave happening. We're also pushing up the extreme kind of brutality of these temperatures. The White House says Russia is laying the groundwork for the annexation of seized Ukrainian territory. The U.S. National Security Council coordinator for strategic communications, John Kirby, said ample intelligence and regular observation shows Russia is installing illegitimate proxy officials in the seized areas. Russia is beginning to roll out a version of what you could call an annexation playbook, very similar to the one we saw in 2014. And we know their next moves. First, these proxy officials will arrange sham referenda on joining Russia. Then, Russia will use those sham referenda as a basis to try to claim annexation of sovereign Ukrainian territory. Mr. Kirby said the United States will shortly announce its 16th weapons package for Ukraine as it battles Russian forces in the east. And South Korean police say the man accused of being one of the country's most notorious drug traffickers has been repatriated from Vietnam to face trial. The man, known only as Mr. Kim, was the subject of an Interpol red notice for dealing illegal drugs through encrypted social messaging channels. The South Korean authorities had worked with their counterparts in Vietnam for three years to track Mr. Kim. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and my co-host today is Danny Gittings. Good morning, Danny. Good morning, Janice. On today's Back Chat, we're talking about the cost of raising a child in Hong Kong. A survey by a local bank found that on average, each child costs $284,000 per year, which works out to around $6 million in all up to the age of 22. That's up by 55% from 2006. So what do you think? Does that figure sound about right? Is it too much? After 9.15, we'll talk about Ocean Park's An-An, the oldest giant male panda in captivity, who is still feeling under the weather. Let us know your thoughts, your questions and your comments on our Facebook page, Backchat at RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can call us, of course. And our number is 23388266. That's 23388266. Now, in the first part of the program, we will be speaking to Professor Ho Lok Sang, the director of the Pan Su Tong Shanghai Hong Kong Economic Policy Research Institute at Lingnan University. We will also be speaking to Lee Crane, ECA International's Regional Director for Asia. Um, let's first go to Professor Ho. Good morning. Uh, good morning. And uh, thanks for joining us on the program. So, um, Professor Ho, what do you think of this figure of uh, $6 million? Is it uh, really a lot more expensive now to raise a child? Well, it would it really depends on how you spend the money, you know, because uh, raising a child doesn't mean that you have to go a particular way. You know, there's so, so many ways that you can do it. Some people send the kids to international schools that cost a lot. But uh, if you go to a local school, actually, you don't have to pay, you know, all the way to uh, pre-university and even after university, the uh, chances that you can, you know, ample room you know for for you to make a loan and the loan um, uh, can be repaid over a long stretch of time so it's actually not 
not as uh, difficult as uh, is uh, depicted, you know, by that particular survey. And um, I remember, I can tell you that uh, when I was small, um, I couldn't even imagine that I could learn an, a musical instrument, you know, because it would be so expensive, so cost. I, I, I even, I, I dared not ask my parents, you know, for for that privilege. But today, the government is providing a, lots of opportunities, you know, and uh, uh, so I realized that uh, uh, kids, you know, living in public housing and uh, relatively poor grassroots families, some of the kids do learn musical instruments. So, so I think uh, um, it is not really as dire as is de- depicted by that particular survey. So, so don't be put off, you know, by that kind of. Uh, data, and I think it is uh, just uh, uh, some people may have to spend that kind of money, uh, but it doesn't mean that it applies to to most people. Right, Professor Ho. I have two uh, comments here from our listeners. Uh, this one is from Richard. He says, uh, your average Hong Kong parent isn't paying anywhere near this amount of money. However, anyone who sends their kids to an international school is. The 55% yeah. increase is probably a direct correlation to the ESF school fee increase since 2006, if not more. Highway robbery endorsed by the EDB. And I have another E, a message here from Ruslan. He says, uh, I guess if your child uh, um, goes to a private school or kindergarten, uh, take extra private tutoring classes, travel often with family and uh, school, also travel overseas, and you go for health checkups at private pediatricians, etc., then yes, it can cost that much. But it doesn't mean you can't raise a kid with less than that. And uh, that comment is from Ruslan. So I guess he has a point there. I mean, like you mentioned, the amount of money spent varies quite a lot depending on the parenting style and the child's need. So, um, Professor Ho, why why are some parents spending so much more? I mean, what are they spending on now that they didn't used to spend? Well, now? the fact is that uh, uh, a lot of families actually have gone so much better off than before. So, if they can afford it, okay, because they have just one child uh, or at most two. I think rarely, extremely rarely do people have more than two kids, you know, and, and that's why uh, they, they spend, you know, all that they can, you know, <laughs> to, to make the, the, the child feel that uh, he or she is very much valued in the family, treasured, you know, like, uh, like, like, a, like a princess or a prince, you know. So, so I think that kind of thinking uh, uh, characterizes those uh, uh, um, Hong Kong middle-class people, you know, when they um, have the means and they they would like to spend that kind of money to to show that they they love the kids. But um, I think this kind of thinking, and especially, you know, the uh, very materialistic kind of thinking and uh, imagining that uh, spending more uh, is a demonstration of love and care, I think that has to be dumped. You know, that kind of thinking is actually uh, very damaging, you know, for the development of the kids. So it's important for, for the kids to know that no matter what, uh, the, you know, people, people can still make a mark. And most importantly, one has to, to um, 
achieve what they can, you know, given given whatever constraints that they fa- that they face. Uh, how about you know, that's, the, that's a challenge in life. How about our highly competitive education system and the sort of mentality of uh, some teachers? I mean, you, you mentioned that um, uh, these uh, you, you can go to government schools for free, but outside those schools, you will almost always see tutorial colleges, won't you? Um, and uh, uh, in this competitive environment, uh, parents want what's best for their kids. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, can imagine their classroom. That is the kind of thinking, you know. But um, you see, the the fact is that today you know, the age to learning, there are plenty, lots of them, lots of them. You know, you, you have uh, uh, a lot of online classes that you can learn, you know, and it's amazingly effective, you know, if you take advantage of those, you know, if you just want to take advantage of those. Of course, if you, if you cannot afford a computer and you do not have the network, the, uh, I mean, the Wi-Fi and so on, then you, you could have a problem. But actually... I understand that there are lots of avenues uh, 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 whereby, you know, uh, people from poor families can get access to a computer. And uh, I, I have um, uh, actually a distant relative whose kid, uh, uh, you know, who, whose family is, is getting uh, the comprehensive uh, social security allowance, you know, and uh, they... Uh, the, the, the kid has access to the computer and and uh, uh, can do so many things with it. You see, so so I think, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, today um, lots of opportunities, you know, uh, are, are there for 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 kids. Uh, unlike the previous, you know, generations, you know, in my during my time when, when I was when I was in primary school, uh, when I. You know, I was trying to learn English, and it was so difficult, you know, because uh, uh, I don't know how to pronounce a particular word. I couldn't uh, get help, you know. It's so difficult. And, uh, and, uh, but today, if you have a, um, a smartphone, then easily you can search for the, for the pronunciation. You know, you have so much aids, so many different kinds of aids that are available today, and uh, it's just beyond imagination, you know, for, for, my, for my generation when we were a small kid. Uh, earlier on, you referred to um, investing in your children as like a loan that pays off over a long period of time. Uh, Professor, what, what were you referring to? Were you referring to the cultural tradition of, um, of children giving money to their parents in their old age or something else? Well... So that you, get, you pour all this money into your child's education, but then you get paid back eventually? No, of course not. No, <laughs> well, it does that, happen sometimes, doesn't it? No, no, that, that, that's really not the point. You see, the point is that uh, uh, parents have to learn, need to learn, the fact that if you care for your kids, you know, you, you give them some guidance, but you don't want to dictate the path, and you don't want to inundate them with material... Uh, um, with, with a lot of cash and materialistic kind of en- enjoyment, you know, this kind of uh, hedonic uh, um, well-being is not really as enduring as what we call eudaimonic uh, well, uh, well-being, which is based on uh, uh, meaning and uh, self-actualization. You know, you you have a dream and then you, and then you strive for your dreams, you know, and, uh, you know, this kind of direction is very, is very much missing. And I have always been advocating par- uh, parenting education, and I think it should actually start 
in schools. You know, in, in schools, when if the kids go to school and learn parenting, you know, in the life education curriculum, and I think life education is, is actually the way to go. And uh, unfortunately, uh, long time ago, people say that sex education is so important, it has to be uh, compulsory, you know. But sex education has to be in the context of life education. So life education is, is the thing that our kids need. And in life education, you also learn parenting. And, and, and if the kids learn parenting, then they know the difficulties parents have to face. You know, and then they put themselves in the roles of the parents and then they, they can start reflecting on these things. All right, uh, let's uh, now bring in uh, Lee Quain. He's uh, ECA International's Regional Director for Asia. Good morning, Mr. Quain. Good morning, how are you? Fine, thank you. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so just now, Professor Ho, I mean, or and uh, our other listeners who, who've commented, they say the uh, $6 million figure is not always accurate because it really depends on the uh, parenting style and how much you actually uh, want to uh, provide for your kid. And um, what, what's your thought on that? Um, I think that's correct, and I agree. Um, obviously, when organisations come up with um, assessments of how much it costs to raise a child, um, they do have to make um, certain assumptions when they're coming up with these um, studies. And we do also notice when it comes to raising a child, um, the cost can vary considerably. Um, the cost varies in accordance with um, several factors, such as what the parents themselves um, can actually afford in order to um, in order to raise their children, and it also um, takes into consideration, or rather, you do need to take into consideration the variation in costs, such as, um, for example, here in Hong Kong, you can, if you want. Um, put a child into a very expensive fee-paying school, or should you wish to do so, you could um, educate them in a much more cost-effective um, school instead. Similarly, um, should you wish to do so, um, you can invest a large amount of money in um, after-school extracurricular activities, or, um, that, again, that's something which is non-compulsory, so parents do not necessarily need to um, expend money on this should they choose not to. Um, so while I can understand why um, the study came out and said that between the ages of um, zero up to the age of 22, um, it could cost up to $6 million. And I don't necessarily think that that's an outlandish figure myself. Um, you can obviously spend more or you could in, indeed spend much less um, between when, when you give birth to a child and obviously when they um, get to the point where they're no longer dependent on their parents. Right. Obviously, the uh, $6 million figure is uh, just an average. Uh, from your research on expats, for example, do you see many expat families uh, spending that much money on their kids or, or perhaps uh, even more? Um, we, we don't necessarily go into um, finite or granular detail when it comes to the cost associated with how much is spent. Um, and also, when you look at expatriates in Hong Kong, um, many expatriates aren't necessarily in Hong Kong for the entire duration of their, um, you know, their, their child's um, growing up period. Um, but if you look at that, $6 million over the course of um, 22 years, I think works out to just around $300,000 or thereabouts per annum. And I do think that there are a significant number of expatriates 
mothers who do spend more than that um, per annum on the child. If you look at international school fees, for example, which are obviously um, the schools where most expatriates send their children to in Hong Kong, fees will typically be somewhere between 100,000 to 250,000 per year. And that doesn't really include costs associated with your additional fees, such as extracurricular activities, um, admission fees and so on and so forth. You've also got the costs associated with um, extracurricular activities, um, costs associated with additional, or rather, the additional costs associated with housing incurred as your family grows. So I do think, yes, it is quite likely that expatriates in Hong Kong will be paying more um, than 250000 to 300000 per year, um, which is what this study works out to in terms of the annual cost. Yes, you're pretty close on. They, they actually estimated 284000 um, a year, which is right in the middle of that range. Um, but how about the issue of, um, of well, for expats and anyone from um, not non-Chinese-speaking families? I, I mean, I know you say there are cheaper educational options available, but um, if you're a non-Chinese-speaking family, those are very limited in Hong Kong. They, they do exist, but they are very limited in number, and uh, non-Chinese-speaking families may find that they have no choice but to go for the more expensive schooling options. That is very true. Um, there are many expatriate families who do try and put their children into, um, obviously, non-international schools. Um, I'm actually one of them, and my daughter herself goes to a local school at the moment. And that does um, require um, the family to invest a large amount of time and effort um, to, to help children. So even if you do put a, a, a non-local child into, uh, into a local school, there's additional costs associated with that, such as tutoring um, in order to improve the quality of um, your, your child's Chinese so they, they can actually keep up with their, their counterparts or their cohorts. Um, and then, but then also what I think is um, quite unique to Hong Kong is a full range or the wide range of international schools that we have. So you do obviously have um, relatively, I would say, relatively cost-effective international schools, um, such as the ESF schools, which are obviously government-associated and to a certain extent government-subsidised. Um, at the other end of the extreme, you do have very expensive international schools, um, but you do also have um, other international schools who are who can be a little bit cheaper um, than um, even something like ESF. So you do have a range of schools and you do have a range of costs which are applicable to people of at all areas of the, I suppose, the affordability spectrum um, that you don't have in other expatriate destinations such as perhaps Singapore or even China um, that we have here in Asia. All right, I have an email here from David, and he's uh, really responding to uh, what uh, Danny and uh, Professor Ho were talking about earlier about uh, parents spending a lot of money on tutoring classes. And uh, David here, he says that uh, the education system is the one who is damaging the kids and taking away their freedom. It is the education system that is creating the rat race. We do not want to pay for extra tutors, but we have to keep the kids in society and the rat race. The situation is you are grading the kid. Who is teaching a kid? Is it the teacher? Is it a domestic helper? Is it the parent? We want to give the kids the best, but we don't want them to become dropouts because they burn out in the system. And uh, that email is from David. Professor Ho, do you have any uh, response to that? 
Professor Hope? Parents, parents have, have sovereignty. You see, and uh, I don't think that we should go the way Beijing is doing, you know, because, you, you know, Beijing, central government thought that this is uh, very, uh, you know, this kind of rat race is very damaging. And so they actually out, effectively outlawed a lot of those uh, tuition classes, you know, that, uh, that, that, that people have uh, a lot of uh, uh, well-to-do. You know, they can pay, the, uh, pay for the kids extra uh, tuition in, in uh, outside school hours, you see. And the government stopped that kind of thing altogether. But actually, that kind of rat race is not necessarily, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, created by the government. It's the parents, you know, parents have sovereignty, or, or you know, and uh, they can uh, decide what kind of uh, a culture that they want to imbue to their kids. And it's possible for them to, to nurture kids who, who can uh, navigate their way through life with limited means, you know, because that's how we have to look at things. You know, there are always constraints, and sometimes the constraints are more binding, sometimes less binding. And we need to work within those constraints, and we need to be able to adapt and take it, take it uh, with, 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 um, with a, um, a mind, with an open mind and accepting mind, meaning that I actually do face those difficulties, whatever challenges that, that, that they are. You know, just take it as part of the test in life. You, you see, and, and I think what I'm saying is that um, um, we need uh, parenting education more than anything else. It's not, we, we, we don't want the government to step in and say that, okay, this is, uh, all these extra tuitions uh, should be banned so, so, so people have a fair uh, uh, environment and so on. You know, I, I, I don't want that at all. You see, let, let parents uh, uh, choose the way of, uh, of bringing up the, the kids, but um, we need to guide them so that they, they have an idea of um, uh, how they can bring up the uh, kids who can be strong. And instead of, okay, these challenges are too much, and I'm blaming this on, on, on the government, on, on society, on, on whatever, you know, that's outside, you know, and they never blame themselves. I think what our listener perhaps is referring to is the situation where the um, parents of all of your children's um, classmates are paying for this extra tuition and their grades are shooting yeah, up. And yeah, there's they, this kind of pressure, but, but I'm, saying, I'm saying that regardless, you see, each person has sovereignty over themselves. And I think that I'm, I'm saying that parents are the one who will bring up kids who are strong-minded, you know, who can resist that kind of peer pressure, and they just do the way that they feel comfortable, you know, internally. They they tell themselves, okay, this is the way I I I go about my my life, you know, I. I don't care what other people do. You know, people, people can continue the, with the rat race. You know, it's the choice. You know, I am I, right? You, you referred a lot to parenting education. Some schools do do that. My um, kids' former pr primary school, they had a parents' academy. But, um, I mean, when, when you talk about parenting education, what, ki what kind of form do you think that should really take? Is it school well, by school I, or yes, Hong Kong wide? I have been saying that parenting education should start in a school, you know, um, and I think we, we should have lots of experts, you know, but unfortunately, so far I have seen 
terrible education reforms over the years. You know, the education reforms have made things worse and worse. And I am so, so unhappy with, with, with those developments. And I think we, we need to mend our way. All right, uh, Professor Professor Ho, um, we're going to have to break for the news very soon. But okay. I just want to, and I just want to um, get your view on this. I mean, we're talking about uh, parents uh, taking, giving their kids extra tutoring classes. We're talking about uh, increasing cost in raising a child. In the end, I mean, what, what sort of impact is it going to have? I mean, will will the people, for example, be less interested in having kids? Yeah, that appears to be the case, but that is only if they uh, think that. Well, if I have a kid, I have to match. You see, if I play the the matching game or the red race game, then it's not very funny. You know, it's uh, too 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 much. So 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 people give up. You see, but people can choose not to engage in the kind of red race. You know, people can can choose to to use their own sovereignty in uh, bringing up the children in a way that. Um, they can be strong enough to face the challenges of life. All right, so Professor Ho, we really have to take a short break for the news now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Professor Ho Lok Sang, the director of the Pan Su Tong Shanghai Hong Kong Economic Policy Research Institute at Lingnan University. And uh, Mr. Quinn, we can continue our discussion in a moment when we will be joined by Silai Shan from the Society for Community Organization. And after 9.15, we will talk about Ocean Park's An An, the oldest giant male panda in captivity, who is still feeling under the weather. Now, if you want to ask questions or just share your views on today's topics, remember you can give us a call. Our number is 23388266. And a quick look at the weather. It will be mainly fine apart from isolated showers. The very hot weather warning is in force. Highs expected today of around 34 degrees in the urban areas. Winds moderate south to southeasterlies. And the outlook, fine and hot uh, in the next couple of days. Right now it's 30 degrees, relative humidity. Humidity, 78%. It battles Russian forces in the east. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Danny Gitchings and me, Janice Wong. If you're just tuning in now, we're talking about the cost of raising a child in Hong Kong after a survey by a local bank found that on average, each child costs $284,000 per year, which works out to around $6 million in all, up to the age of 22. That's up by 55% from 2006. If you want to ask questions or share your view, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 23388266. Still with us on the program is Lee Quain, ECA International's Regional Director for Asia. And joining us now is Silai Shan, the Deputy Director of the Society for Community Organization. Good morning, Ms. C. Hey, good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so, Ms. C, this uh, survey says that on average, $284,000 is spent on raising a child each year. Um, how much money do you think a grassroots family spends on uh, raising a child every year? Do you have an estimate? Uh, for those uh, low-income uh, uh, um, family or those citizens' uh, family, their income is very low. Average, uh, they only have uh, around 2000 something uh, for the every month for the children so uh, it's impossible to have this kind of high uh, uh, expenditure for the children right so so what do you think these uh, figures actually say about the uh, rich poor gap um, actually the gap between the uh, rich and poor is uh, getting 
bigger in in Hong Kong because the salary is very low and then the business amount is uh, uh, also is as low as um, is lower than the property at night. And uh, especially in, in in the past few years because the pandemic, um, many families they are unemployed or unemployed. So it's, it's even more hard for them to, to bring up the children and some of them even they actually they can afford three meals and they they, <clears throat> they need to skip meals and then to in order to pay for their uh, study expenditure of their children and the rent. So this is a quite hard time for the family. You, you say they need to skip meals to pay for the study of the children. Of course, these children will be going to government schools. There's, there's no need yeah, to pay yeah. any school but fees. They need, pay, but... they need to pay for the, uh, uh, um, for example, the tutorial class or yeah. those, um, they need to pay for the textbook or the school uniform and the subsidy is not enough. And uh, also, they, um, you know, there's a whole wrong, whole wrong uh, um, person's uh, development policy in school, and so they need to have a one sport and one art, and those they need to uh, subsidize uh, the family. So, so actually, they 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 have many expenditures, and and besides, so some of the family they they will not for the children to learn a long term uh, uh, course, but they will just pay that year or two years because they need. To come, they already attend a school or a sport or a arts. And once they fulfill their requirement, they will stop the, the study because otherwise it, it's quite uh, high pay for them to need to pay to quite high fee. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned you said they need to pay for tutorial colleges. Of course, it's not compulsory for them to pay for tutorial colleges. It, it's the, we've talked about this a lot this morning already. It's the competitive pressure, isn't it? They they want their children to do as well as the other children, and they think they need to spend all this extra money, even if it means that um, they don't have enough money for food. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's that's true. So what? So some of the family they will uh, ask for uh, donation of food or ask donation of uh, we, we we will also give the food or supermarket voucher or they will go to different kind of angels to see uh, anyone can give them some help so you know that they can save some money for their children. Of course, in China, and one of our guests mentioned they they responded to this problem by basically banning uh, tutorial colleges, at least in, in uh, for for some ages and for English and so on, um, uh, which I suppose results in a fairer outcome. Would would you ever think that something like an extreme measure like that might help uh, underprivileged children in Hong Kong? Yeah, I think we we need to review the whole policy for for those uh, children living in poverty. Some of our policy, we have some some subsidy but not enough for example we have the food assistance but every three uh, every six months only uh, eight weeks and so it's not enough and for those already desperate family and uh, government always said you you just go to CSSA but actually even CSSA is not enough because some of the family when they need to pay for the tutorial cards pay for the interest cards for the children and they, they, they don't have enough money for their food. And because they, they, they don't support this kind of expenditure. And the school, they have uh, some subsidy, but also not enough for the children to, to pay for. So the family, they need to cover some. And and that's the, and then they're always arguing. For example, we, we they need to pay for their uh, the internet and their uh, computer. And we have argued for, for years. And then they finally they have the internet. 
uh, but internet also is uh, average for example if they are living in subdivided flat those old buildings they need to pay, pay higher online free and then they there's no subsidy for computers so there's so many things uh you know, it's always arguing and then uh and not 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 so uh, comprehensive or enough. Yeah. Right. I just want to go to um, Mr. Queen for a moment. Um, Mr. Queen, is it, um, I mean, after listening to what uh, Ms. C has been saying and also what uh, Professor Ho was saying before, um, is, is it just Hong Kong that is uh, spending more and more money on kids or, or is it uh, similar? Is there a similar trend in other places? I, I think, unfortunately, um, it's actually a global phenomenon. So we know that. Um, the cost of raising a child is increasing globally and those costs are significant in other locations in Asia. Um, so if we just look at the cost of, again, this is a relatively small um, element to benchmark against, but if we look at the cost of international schools um, globally, um, if we look at places such as Singapore, China and so on, the cost for parents to send children to international schools in these locations are much higher than they are here in Hong Kong. Um, but we've also seen in other locations in the region where we, we talked about in depth um, this morning about the pressure that's put on children and therefore the need for them to go to tu tutorial classes and extra classes. That, again, is not something which is unique to Hong Kong. We talked about... Um, the issue that we've seen in China, but this is also common elsewhere. Um, South Korea, for example, is notorious for having um, very competitive um, education and therefore cramming schools. Japan is also very similar. Singapore is similar as well. And even globally now, so even in places such as the UK, which has historically taken a relatively, not necessarily a hands-off, but a, you know, a much more relaxed approach to children's schooling. You do see parents facing more pressure now, um, enrolling their children, for example, in much more in the way of extracurricular activities, um, which are not necessarily designed specifically for to nurture the, ch uh, the child's growth, but more designed to make them much more competitive or attractive in the marketplace um, when they come to obviously. Um, graduate from either high school or university and then and then enter the workforce. So this is actually something that we are seeing um, globally. So it's a global phenomenon. All right, I have a few messages here. This uh, email is from David. He says, uh, the problem is uh, the very, very beginning of education. If you do not spot the kid who is slow or the key hasn't clicked, then that kid will always have a problem to catch up and will always be getting extra work and depressed. That is the problem you have to solve at the very beginning. And uh, this message is from Kim. She says, uh, I agree with that there is a pressing need for parenting education. The EDB also needs to do their job. Educational reforms over the past 20 years have been shocking. Professor Ho's comments this morning have been a spot on. Well, Professor Ho's not here anymore, but uh, hopefully he's still listening. <laughs> and um, Missy, what, what do you think of a suggestion uh, by our earlier guest? I know you were not uh, there at the moment, um, but uh, he was suggesting a parenting education. What do you think of that idea? Uh, I think, of course, the uh, parenting education would be uh, uh, good for those uh, uh, low-income families. But I think the, the crux of the problem is not the, the parent 
is because their income is low. And then besides, I think their education policy is, is um, I think it requests too much. And for example, uh, now because we have the whole person uh, uh, policy, uh, development policy, so those they need to have a uh, children request to develop every aspect. But actually, not every children they have this kind of uh, ability to develop every uh, aspect. And besides, not the family cannot afford to have pay so many aspect development. And this is, is one is the problem. And the other is that when the, the school requests the education uh, uh, policy request is, but the, the government they did not address the the problems of those family. They are the income is low, and actually, the, the parent they are very hardworking. And or some of the families they are very good educated and and even they are low in, low low uh, low income they are very hard to 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 parent well the children, but they cannot solve these kind of economic problems or the, the uh, education uh, needs. They they cannot help to to this. I think this is the the the, the problem uh, we are facing. And uh, so um so even, and and I think also the education system is very competitive. And uh, even before uh, we, when you from form V to promote to form four, you need to compete because only eighty five percent. But but after that, uh, after every a few years ago, they they uh, go to ten hundred percent. But when you go to university, they still get competition. So those low income families actually they are try very hard to to catch up with the the pace of the the, the uh, 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 school they request them. Uh, but the problem they they really have economic uh, 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 problems. They cannot afford to to, to do this. You, I think so. That's the problem. You're saying the competitive school system is is a problem. If we could change the school system, make it less competitive, it would be easier for lower income families, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they don't they don't need to force to follow up this kind of. Actually, some of them they they really cannot uh, follow up with. And they so that when they they choose the when they want to promote to form one and uh, school, secondary school, they they have with with her uh, testimony and they have less opportunity to go to good school. Actually, they already uh, have a has a problem, and they always read in uh, English and, and and so that's the problem because when some of the, actually some of us students they even study very well in primary, but when they promote to English secondary school and those uh, are band one school, they, they feel very hard to catch up with because actually those uh, middle class or upper, uh, they are, their parents, they are good at English, they are widened, their vision is very widened, and it's, it's hard for them to catch up with this kind of uh, uh, phenomenon. Yeah. All right. Uh, Mr. Crane, I have a one message here from a listener, Malcolm. Maybe you can help uh, answer his question. Um, he says that it seems to me that these surveys are always put out by banks who are using them to scare parents into buying their investment products. It's simply a sales strategy. But uh, for, I mean, it's probably a sales strategy. But from what you're saying earlier, people are spending a lot more, right? They are indeed. So, yes, I can um I can concur with, uh, with the person, or rather with Malcolm. Um, one of the reasons when you are looking at studies such as this, you obviously do need to look into um, who's put them out and obviously read between the lines and see, well, what is their uh, reason for doing so? Um, but uh, as I've said, I think generally speaking, when you take into consideration the, the costs 
associated with um, school fees, even if it's not an international school, even if it's, a, I suppose, a, maybe a DSE school or, or something like that, and the additional costs that we, we've talked about in depth over the course of this morning. Um, I don't necessarily think that um, the costs that have been mentioned are particularly outlandish. Um, so, so yes, unfortunately, they are. They do seem to be quite, um, quite indicative. Although, once again, I'll repeat what I said earlier in that um, it is a range, and um, if you want, you can spend much less on your child's education. Um, and there are obviously ways of doing so here in Hong Kong. All right, uh, Mr. Quain, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Lee Quain, ECA International's Regional Director for Asia. Many thanks also to Silai Shan, the Deputy Director for SOCO. It's now 17 minutes past nine, and it's time for us to turn to our second topic today. And it's about Ocean Park's An An, the oldest giant male panda in captivity. As many of you already know, An An has been uh, away from visitors for more than two weeks now because he has lost his appetite and is in low spirits. And according to the latest update we got from Ocean Park yesterday, An An is still suffering from a poor appetite. He's moving less and is resting more. The uh, park went on to say that its animal care and veterinary teams are now caring for him around the clock and doing their utmost to keep the geriatric giant panda comfortable. Um, So what could behaviour like this uh, possibly mean in a giant panda? Uh, To tell us more, we're joined now by Susan and Gendron, the uh, former executive director of zoological operations and education at Ocean Park. Good morning, Ms. Gendron. Ah, good morning. How are you? This Fine, morning? thank you. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, you are with Ocean Park for a very long time, so I guess you must know An An quite well. Um, how do you feel after hearing about uh, his latest condition? I mean, should we be concerned? Well, I'm I'm very saddened to to hear that he's. Uh, lost his appetite and slowing down, but I also uh, celebrate that he's the oldest male panda and probably has lived longer than any other male panda and that he's had an amazing life that has influenced and inspired millions of our visitors uh, for conservation and awareness of panda conservation. Uh, He's had a marvelous life worth living. I do feel that it's probably nearing the end of his time with us. Uh, we were very lucky to have Jaja until she was 38. He'll be 36 this September, though we don't know exactly how old he is. I don't know if you remember his story, but he was rescued as a cub, and they estimated him to be about three months old when they found him. And so they put his birthday at September of 1986, and so he would be uh, 36 years old this September, but he could be already 36, we don't know. So he's, he's pretty old for a giant panda and in w- the wild. And it was a long time ago, but do you, do you still remember the moment you first uh, met An An? Oh my gosh, yes. I remember it very vividly. We went up to Wulong. It was my first month in Hong Kong and my first month with Ocean Park, and we went up to, to Wulong uh, to to meet An An and Jaja before before they even came back to, and that would be in November 1998, before they uh, came to Hong Kong in uh, April of uh, 1999, while we were finishing up the exhibit and, and officially they could come in. 
And I remember he uh, he was a very, uh, how should I put him? I don't want to give him human emotions, but if, if I were to describe it as a human, I would say he was aloof. He was not, uh, didn't interact with people very much. And so uh, he was, he was taken good, well, he was well taken care of, but he didn't interact with people very much. Um, and he was a beautiful animal. He had been to a number of other places, Singapore, he was an ambassador animal. Uh, and then when we, uh, he came to us, working with him, um, we were able to use positive reinforcement to teach him various behaviors to help us take better care of him. And which is why he's had such a good long life, too, is that he learned to hold out his paw. And this was the first time giant pandas ever were taught any of these medical behaviors. So being able to check on his health and make sure he was always healthy, we could have him hand out his, his paw and take a blood to make sure he was healthy. We could take blood pressure. We learned so we could take and look at his teeth. We could check his body fat. We could do 99% of everything we needed on his annual physicals just through these behaviors. And he always was then rewarded after doing any of these with um, affection or uh, whatever his favorite uh, food was at the time. I remember Lula specifically likes lavender towels. I don't think he was as keen on lavender towels. but So he, he was able, through being with Ocean Park, for as many years as he has been now, he was one of the very first pandas, he and Jaja, to show the rest of the world that pandas are bright animals that could learn and be um, partners in their health exams like that. So that was one of the first lessons he taught us. And the veterinarians learned so much about animal health that all veterinarians treating animals that come in from the wild have more information. Not that Ocean Park was the only one that did that, but working together with other zoos and aquariums that had uh, pandas under human care and the Wulong Nature Reserve where the pandas were under human care. You know, we built up a wide, large body of knowledge on um, care of animals and for geriatric pandas, Ocean Park led the way on, on geriatric panda medicine. The second thing that was so, that has been so marvelous, as I mentioned earlier, is that millions of people have come through the, the giant panda habitat where Anon lives. And yeah. seeing him and um, just the, the emotional connections by looking at him in the eye and watching his behaviors and appreciating what an amazing animal Anon and other giant pandas are, they're much more aware of nature, that connection to nature, and are more likely to have pro-environmental behaviors of being able to do things that help other animals in the wild. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So, so, what, what, is, what is it that captivates us about pandas so much? And that, that we, have, um, we all love them. There's, what, 3,500 likes on Ocean Park's post about that. And, and what, 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 is it just that they, they're so incredibly cute? Why, why is it that we, 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 we spend 15 minutes on a radio program talking about a panda? Well, I think one of the reasons we all like pandas is they, they are always looking vulnerable. 
because they're eye-patched. They have big eyes, and that appeals to us, just like babies appeal to us. And they have such an amazing repertoire of behaviors that they, you know, act out during their, their daily, you know, looking for food and playing, that they just appeal to us. And, and that is an absolutely wonderful thing for children and adults to have that connection to nature as I, as I learn more on the importance of connections to nature and how that helps inspire and inculcate our stewardship for nature. It's really important that our children today who are on technology so much have an opportunity to have those personal connections with animals to have those develop those uh, strong connections with nature and so that they too will take up the baton to be stewards of nature when they grow up. So I think pandas are just an amazing animal. Now, you worked with the team at Ocean Park for so long. I'm sure you still know many of the people working with Anan at Ocean Park. What, what kind of, and we're told that they are trying to sort of encourage Anan to, to try and revive his appetite. What, what, what kind of thing, lead us through what kind of things you think the staff will be doing to try and get, get him eating again? Well, they'll, they'll try all his favorite foods. They, uh, Ocean Park has a bamboo farm up in uh, the Guangzhou province with more than five species of bamboo that different times of the year the pandas prefer. So they'll bring that bamboo in nice and fresh and be able to give it to them. Um, I, I have not had a chance to speak to the veterinarian since I'm overseas right now to know what exactly they're doing, but they would, they would look to making uh, him comfortable in, so that he's not in any pain, that he's and try to keep his appetite with favorite foods. They also might make um, buns, you know, wowotau type buns to that they can flavor, and that's how they always would give him their uh, his medicine when he needed any sort of medicine. So they can. Uh, we'll be still doing things along those lines. Uh, I think those would be the the things that they would try. He. Had a rep- he had different uh, fruits that he would eat, uh, different vegetables that he would eat. So they'll, they'll just keep trying different foods because maybe he doesn't want an apple today, but this afternoon he'll have an apple. So they'll, they'll rotate and try the different foods. But again, I'm not there and I have not spoken with the vets to know exactly what they're doing this time. I just know that this is how we always would take care of an animal that's not eating is see if we can stimulate his appetite through the foods that they prefer and then uh, keep him eating. But what if that doesn't work? Well, there's, um, again, you know, there's always, just as in human medicine, there's opportunities for IV fluids, uh, subcutaneous fluids, and food intravenously just like we would get when we're in the hospital and can't eat or need nutrients. Um, There's also other types of uh, paste. But again, I cannot speak for the veterinarians because I'm not there today doing what they're doing. So um, I I would, you know, I would love to talk to you about uh, the fact that 
since when I first started at Ocean Park in 1998, there were 23 reserves. There are now 67, more than 67 reserves. And as the, and there were about a thousand, maybe 1,100 pandas under in the wild, and only a few under human care. And now there's well over 1,864 in the 2015 census in the wild. So that they've actually gone from critically endangered on the um, International Union of Conservation for Nature's red list down to vulnerable. They're still vulnerable for habitat loss and fragmentation, but you know they're not exploited for their fur. They're not hunted. They don't have any major uh, predators. So really, it's just being able to get enough food and be able to get from one habitat to the other so that they can mate since they're normally loners. And then during the mating season, they need to, to be able to travel distances up to 25 miles to, to find a mate. All right. So and Ms. again, Gendron. China's made uh, corridors so that between their reserves so that the pandas can do that. All right, Ms. Gendron, unfortunately, we're out of time. But thanks for joining us this morning. And that's Suzanne Gendron, the former executive director of zoological operations and education at Ocean Park. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed back chat today. And of course, to my co-host, Danny Gittings and my producer, Yuki. Now, here's the weather. It will be mainly fine apart from one or two showers. The very hot weather warning is in force. Today's top temperature will be around 34 degrees. Winds moderate southerlies and the outlook staying fine and very hot in the next couple of days with temperatures reaching as high as 35 degrees in the urban areas. Right now it's 30 degrees, relative humidity 77%. The more people get vaccinated, the stronger we can fight the epidemic. Under the vaccine pass, persons without medical or other exemptions and age 12 or above must be vaccinated to enter food premises, scheduled premises, government leisure and cultural venues and more. Jab records can be saved in the Leave Home Safe app for easy use or shown in the IM Smart and eHealth apps or kept on hard copy to show or scan the QR code of your record as required. With the protection of vaccines, we will resume normal life soon. It's 9.31, the news with Andrew Shirovsky. Thank you, Janice. The government has promised to put young people at the forefront of policymaking. The Secretary for Home and Youth Affairs, Alice Mack, says young people must be given opportunities to pursue their dreams and succeed. She also says officials must show sincerity when reaching out to youngsters and hearing them out. The head of a community college says he expects a further decline of up to 5% in the number of students sitting Hong Kong's main secondary school leaving exam. Professor L.S. Chan from HKU Space Community College was commenting ahead of the release of results today for the Diploma of Secondary Education. Authorities said more than 40% of the exam takers met minimum university entrance requirements. And the internet streaming giant Netflix has reported losing subscribers for the second quarter in a row. But the loss of 970,000 paying customers was less than expected. We'll have more on these and other stories at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, great interpreter of Beethoven. As well. Oh, so shy, quiet, and retiring doggy council co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults, it's not really for kids. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. The side of what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. Inter- interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew.
to you. Welcome to Wednesday here on The Morning Brew. It is Classical Music Day. And composer and conductor Colin Touchin will be back with us at 10.40 to do his best to befuddle your brain. Because he's going to play you some musical masterpieces with irregular time signatures today. And that is music with an extremely odd groove that you just can't clap to. Try as you might. After 11.30, RTL France's Philippe Dovar will be with us live from his base in Tokyo. And today he has a musical tribute to the French singer Danny, who passed away a couple of days ago at the age of 77. Then at 12.10, Chris Watts will be with us to fix your biceps tendinitis. Join him on Facebook Live as well, where you can ask questions and watch him demo some of the exercises.